He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host, joined by the rest of the Munson's. want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. We can't ask that of Rigby quite yet, because he is not here. He's dealing with some life stuff, but he will be here eventually. So when you hear Rigby pop into your, your earballs, then you'll know he's made his late arrival like Will Smith in Independence Day. Better late than never. Are we getting back to this deal where Rigby's just late every single episode? Yes. Could be a trend. Uh, when he gets here, we'll be happy to have him. Debatable. And I'll toss it over to James. I'm excited, man. Last season, last half of the last season of Attack on Titan uh, came out this week, and Ooh. I couldn't be more excited. I was at a wedding for one of my fraternity brothers, and someone there mentioned that show, and I was actually so enthusiastic about how I liked it that they thought I was mocking them. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know how to be excited and not be condescending, I guess, but I really love that show. <laughs> like, no, I'm just a nerd. Yeah, I was like, dude, it's Come a great on. show. He's like, I, I don't think you're telling the truth. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Case. You know, not a whole lot's new in my world, man. I survived the holidays and pumped up for an eventful 22. Except, as I was thinking about it today, there really nothing felt different between 21 and 20. And it gives me very little faith that anything's going to feel tw- different in 2022. And as I was getting my mail, I was just thinking about all the COVID stories that I'm hearing. And that's all everybody's talking about. A car was driving slowly down my neighborhood, and I felt like it was a COVID threat. It's gotten that bad for me that I just assume everything's a COVID threat. <laughs> it's a drive-by COVID. <laughs> drive-by COVIDing. <laughs> On my end, I am happy to report since the last episode that I still have not gotten COVID. I know last time prophetically I said I was probably going to get it. I didn't. I got my negative PCR test today, so I'm, I'm feeling good into 2022. We're going to ride that as long as possible. I'm also excited just for the first episode of 2022. I know we're recording this a few days after, and this will launch on the 13th, but we're officially in year three of recording Munson's episode, so that's that's a pretty cool moment for us. Wow, that's nuts. Officially year three, almost technically almost at the two-year mark, but you know, if we're looking at calendar years, we're there. And speaking of three years, we've got a third appearance from our friend Chip Hessenflow. Chip is the co-host of the Too Much Scrolling podcast with all the information you need to survive another week. Movie, books, news, published Tuesday. He owns a financial planning practice in the Chicago and Raleigh area. He works with all sorts of people who are much more interesting than he is. He enjoys his career, which lends him time to think and sometimes be creative. Chip was born bald. You can find Too Much Scrolling on your favorite podcatcher or smart speaker by searching Too Much Scrolling. Chip was previously here for our James Marsden and Emma Thompson episodes. Welcome back, Chip. How's life going? And and it seems like there's been a little bit of a podcast change since the last time we had you. Well, Too Much Scrolling is what we originally started out with. With COVID, we brought in sandwiches at, reg- sandwiches at irregular hours so we could work with a professor out of University of Connecticut who really... Um, She's a professor we all want to have. Anyway, we had a great time reading all the Sherlock Holmes stories with her. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she eventually has to go back to real life. And (laughs) 
we had to go back to our roots. So we, we basically, we were releasing everything through too much scrolling anyway, so you can catch us through that. But, uh, you know, the, the great part about this is, you know, am I Tom Hanks, Christopher Walken, you know, Steve Martin? You know, they were all like the, the mega host on Saturday Night Live. My host. <laughs> I got the level I need to be. <laughs> we got a gold jacket for you, too. Oh, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> You've got the charm, Chet. You've got the charm. <laughs> We know if you've listened before, if you listen to Too Much Scrolling or one of Chip's previous appearances, he will pepper in the most random references. So be prepared. They're coming. Mm -hmm. They're creative. And they always add a little spice to our life. So we're happy to have you back, Chip. And let's get rocking and rolling with this Broderick episode. Rigby's not here yet. So somebody has to tackle the birthdays. So just so we're keeping track at home, normally it would be Warren. Warren's not here. Normally it'd be Rigby. So we're down to like the third option. And so I'm going to step in my first time ever running the birthday segment. Ooh, a lot of pressure, dude. A lot of pressure. I know. I'm going to throw it back a little bit here to the original Warren days. I'm going to, I'm going to reintroduce his model of introducing the characters. So, all right. First up this time is Orlando Bloom. He is most known for his roles in Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings franchise, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Troy, and the Three Musketeers. How old is Orlando Bloom? Oh, my goodness. So you're saying Three Musketeers was his best movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why we put it at the end. So how old is Mr. Bloom? I'm going to go with 40. I think that's a good guess. I haven't seen him in a long time. I'll go 45. Maybe 48. All right. On January 13th, 2022, Orlando Bloom turns 45 years old. So James Oh, happy spot birthday, on. Orlando. <laughs> Well done. Nailed dude. it. James is on a hot streak. He did well last time, so let's see if he can keep it going. Michael Pena is the next actor who turns, who has a birthday. He is best known for his roles in Ant-Man and the Wasp, Crash, Tower Heist, a movie we'll talk about today on the Broderick episode, and Chips. <laughs> How old is Michael Pena? I think a lot of our more serious film buffs might turn us off when I say this, but I enjoyed Crash. That's <laughs> <laughs> fine. Yeah, all right. It, it didn't deserve to win Best Picture. It doesn't no. mean it's the worst movie ever made. Like, no. People hate on that movie. Yeah, it's because it won the biggest award in the land, so people automatically start to hate it. I know, I know. What do we got? Give me 46. Okay. 46, wow. I think he's younger. I'm saying 32. It's going low. Split the middle. Yeah, we have no idea is what, what we're hearing. Then. Uh, <laughs> 38, because clearly we're, we have no clue on how old this man is. All right, so we had 32, 38, and 46. Michael Pena turns 46, so case spot on. Wow. Nailed it. <laughs> we're two for two on exact guesses, so do not mess up this last one. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who's obviously known for her role on Seinfeld for many years. Enough said with your boy, James. Oh, I, I know. I, enough said was really good. Her more recent role in the Marvel world is Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, who's going to be playing a big role in Phase 4 and beyond, and 1986's Troll. How old is Julia <laughs> well, Louis-Dreyfus? Well, also, she almost was the first actress ever to win Emmy for Outstanding Actress in a Comedy Series every sh season that the show was on the air. Missed it by one season. That was with Veep. Veep's hysterical. Yes, yeah, it is. Loves some JLD. Yeah. How old is JLD? I'm going to say 50. Yeah, that feels right. I think I'll go older. 55? I'm going to play the game. 51. 
There you go. You're all under. She is 61. So James wins. Is she really? Oh, wow. She's 61, huh? 61. Happy birthday to all those humans who are at least 45 years of age on January 13th. We had five actors that we threw onto the wheel for this episode, which is episode 53, if I'm not mistaken, 53. And those five were Sienna Miller, Nicholas Cage, Nick Cage, you know, the the world-renowned, Steve Buscemi, Anthony Mackie, and none of it matters because The Wheel has chosen our boy Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick has 84 credits on his resume. That's on the film side. As we'll talk about, he has done quite a bit on the Broadway theater side as well, and we'll get into that. And his his career is a mix of film and brief TV appearances. Hasn't done a lot of recurring characters over the years, but those 25 credits on the stage is is pretty significant comparatively to a lot of other performers we've covered up to this point. Yeah. So let's dig into it. Trivia. We start with James, seeing if he can stump us with his two truths and a lie segment. Yes. So we're going to read three facts here. Two of them are going to be true facts about Matthew Broderick. One of them is going to be a fact about one of the many actors in the Fast and the Furious franchise. Guys are going to try to guess which one that one is. Fact number one, his dad played quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys and won a Super Bowl as a backup. Fact number two, is directly responsible for the start of Fisher Stevens, shout out from the last episode, Mm. acting career. Fact number three, once had his voice dubbed over by the lead singer of Toto due to a lack of singing talent. Because I was going to say that number three is actually the lie because that's about Jason Statham. And I only say that because I started laughing, thinking about all the roles that Jason Statham would have been hilarious in that Broderick played. And conversely, <laughs> all the roles Broderick would have been just hilarious in Statham. So He would have killed it in The Producers. I want to live in a world <laughs> where uh, Matthew Broderick is fighting with The Rock. That's what I want. <laughs> so I'm switching now. My, I was thinking that uh, two was going to be the incorrect one. But I'm going to go with three because you have convinced me Three, because but Broderick sings. He's on Broadway. I mean, I sing real well, but he sings a little bit. <laughs> All right. I will say I think one is the lie because that is none other than Her Highness. I'm going to mention her again. That is Secunda Wood from Fast and Furious <laughs> Spy Racers. Her dad, Super Bowl winning quarterback. 100%. It's Secunda. Secunda Wood. I can't believe you're still referencing that woman's <laughs> poor name. So the one part that no one chose, so you guys all agree, is true, is fact number two, is directly responsible for the start of Fisher Stevens' acting career. That is true. So it's actually a pretty funny story. Fisher Stevens gives Matthew Broderick credit for starting his career because Fisher Stevens dropped out of high school at the age of 15 to pursue acting. And he wasn't getting any roles because a 15-year-old showing up at that point, if it's not a child you're playing, it's probably pretty hard to get a role. He met Matthew Broderick at a high school party uh, when he was 15. They're from a different part of New York City. And they uh, bonded over the fact that they were both trying to get into acting. And they both liked smoking weed. So at the party, they hung out. (laughs) He said, I didn't get an audition for three years. And so at that point, I was essentially just like, hey, I dropped out of high school for this. It's not working. Maybe time to pack it in. And then Matthew Broderick reached out to him and said that he was actually leaving this play he was working on called the Torch Song Trilogy to do another play, Brighton Beach. 
and that he thought that Torch uh, song was going to go to Broadway and that Fisher should audition for it or put in a good word. He did. He performed on Broadway for a year and a half. And then when Broderick left Brighton Beach, he's like, dude, I'm going to leave. You should take this role. And he did. And he got that one as well. And so like the first three years of his career wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Matthew Broderick just like shooting him a call and being like, you should apply for the job that I'm quitting. And it worked. So we can say that Matthew Broderick doesn't uh, bogart his roles. No, not at all. It seems to be the other way where he's like, dude, you'd be great for this. Fact number three, that he once had his voice dubbed dubbed over by the lead singer of Toto due to a lack of singing talent. Um, Despite the fact that he has performed in musicals, that is true. And it was because of the vocal range of Simba in The Lion King, specifically Hakuna Matata and Can You Feel the Love Tonight? He was replaced by Joseph Williams. Joseph just happens to also be the lead singer for the band Toto. Had no idea. I had no idea. That That is crazy. <laughs> yeah. It rains down in Africa. I learned something new this episode. Yeah. I totally learned that. In fact, number one, uh, that his dad played quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys and won a Super Bowl as a backup, while the Brodericks family is successful in their own right, and we'll cover them here in a moment. They were not professional athletes. This is actually a fact about Fast and Furious 6 star Gina Carano. Her father, Glenn Carano, backed up Roger Staubach when they won the the Super Bowl 12 Super Bowl. Had no idea. He played played seven years in the league, only threw for 300 yards, so he was a career backup, but not too shabby to get a ring. Super Bowl um, 12 was my first Super Bowl that I remember watching. There you go. Look at that. Look, Look little, little fact for you. So it's hard being 20 years old. Date this man. (laughs) Date this man. All right. Well, James, that was great. I still believe you're lying and that it was Secunda Wood, but we'll move on. (laughs) Case, tell us a little bit about Broderick's snapshot in box office history. I guess it wasn't totally surprising, but, but Matthew Broderick has actually put up some pretty big numbers in the box office. And I think a lot of it started with the massive movie that kind of put him on the map in terms of like popularity, which was... Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And following that movie, he had six straight pretty profitable films and projects. And and I think a lot of that was folks were just going to watch that to see Ferris Bueller in a different type of role. It was a massive box office hit. However, it is not his most impressive box office performance. Anybody want to guess what that was? Mm. Is it Godzilla? Nope. Couldn't have been Godzilla. Because it's not always the biggest budget movie. It could be a low budget film that just got a lot of money. Was it Cable Guy? No, I will tell you guys, I had to double check this when I read it, but it's impressive. B-movie? Boxy Blues? It's in the 90s. I have no idea. With a $45 million budget, this movie world grossed over a billion it's Lion King, isn't it? Oh, it my Lion God. King. Dude, which I'm is, so stupid. Which is the <laughs> seventh highest. But and so like that, I did the same thing, right? Like I didn't, I just didn't apply him to that. And even then, I I, I was shocked at that time that that movie. A lot of money. A yeah. billion dollars. It, it's nuts. I think it's still up there as like one of the most successful animated movies of all time. And it came and it was like, what was that? 94 when it came 94? out? Yep. It's seventh on our list. There you go, seven. Yeah. Since he has Lion King padding his stats, it's probably not going to surprise <laughs> you that he has some real stinkers. He's got one movie that we'll talk about later that's lost a shitload of money, The Thief and the Cobbler, budgeted for 25 mil, world box office, 669000 which is I thought was interesting because it had a 74% audience rating. And then here's five other doozies. Road to Wellville, $25 million budget, 6.6 world gross. Finding Amanda, $3.9 million budget, $77,000 world gross. 
Margaret, $14 million budget, $565,000 world gross. Last shot, $8 million budget, $541,000. And then rules don't apply. $25 million budget, $3.9 million world gross. So that just goes to show you how powerful that the Lion King is in his box office resume. This was nuts to me. His average return on investment for his projects is $45.5 million. Wow. Damn. It's because of Lion King is the huge outlier there. Yeah, you got the Lion King on there, which bumps that one way up. Pretty interesting box office profile this time that is actually based on box office things. Overall, he ranks 33 in star meter, 23 in critic ranking, 45 in fan ranking, 26 in average box office, and 7th in single film box office. You put all of that together and you get yourself 34th in uh, Munson's at the Movie box office rank. 34 of 53. I was going to say one thing that surprises me is in going through his filmography, how many just like true disasters there were. Because I think of him as like this like Hollywood royalty. And I mean, obviously we'll cover it, but I'm not sh- uh, Now I am less shocked about his box mm-hmm. office scores than prior to watching his filmography. Yeah. Appreciate you. You bet. All right. So we're going to contrast a lot. We're going to, usually we kind of compartmentalize these things. We're going to contrast a lot as we go along film and theater. Cause there's a, there's just a lot. And I think it, they, they need to be explained in concert with one another because he's been in so many film adapt- adaptations of plays that he's done and so it's it's hard to like segment that at the end when he's done the film roles as well so we're going to pepper them in as we go but early days first major role we're going to say is 1983 before that in those early days you know similar to Luis, he's a new york guy born in new york born in manhattan still lives there unlike Luis, who lives in vermont now his parents as james mentioned were a playwright and an actor, so not the Jim Carrey story of grind it out and work in factories. You know, he he was born into an entertainment family, a very successful entertainment family. His dad was in Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, was he? Also the original taking of Pelham 123. There we go. Successful. Did some things, did some cool stuff. That led him to doing some private artsy uh, what he called artsy school at the walden school so he you know private education in the arts you know he's kind of given all the tools to be successful in this world if this is where he wanted to go and he did his acting training at at the hb studio born in manhattan and got some of the best training you can get to do this work his first ever role was alongside his dad in a theater production of on valentine's day he was 17 years old. I thought you were going to say a published home video, and I was going to say that does not count. No. <laughs> no, he wasn't doing straight-to-home video stuff at that point. When he wasn't getting high with Fisher Stevens and skipping class, he was off acting with his dad in, in plays, I guess, at the age of 17. He suffered anxiety. <laughs> exactly. <It's not> <laughs> early pioneer. <laughs> and glaucoma. His first big theater role, a lot of his early career is theater-based, was in Torch Song Trilogy, which James had mentioned. During that performance, or after that performance, he was noticed by New York Times critic Mel Gussow, which led him to the Broadway stage. His first role was in a TV show, Lou Grant, in 1981. So a few years later... And, but his first film role was in Max Dugan Returns, his character named Michael, in 1983. Also the first film role of Kiefer Sutherland. Really? Max really? Dugan Returns, same one? 
Yep. That is M1. That's a cool fun fact. Ooh. See, James always got extra ones to pepper in from his research. Uh-huh. But 83 is when his career takes a step up. He He's on the stage. He's doing Brighton Beach memoirs. And he wins a Tony for Best Featured Actor in 83, which early in your career like that, that's that's huge. Brighton Beach memoirs is also awesome, by the way. Uh, it's one of the first like dramatic plays I ever saw because my sisters mm-hmm. were doing like a high school version of it. And I was like a little kid and I was blown away by it. And so I went and I watched the movies. Highly suggested. What was his role? He was on the play. In the movie, he's the main guy, is uh, Eugene. Okay. Who is like, he's like a teen. It's I mean, it's right in the sweet spot for Matthew Broderick. He's the teenager who's breaking the fourth wall to the audience and explaining kind of like oh, yeah. his musings on life. That's right up his alley. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Same year, he did Bloxy Blues on the stage as well, which he then later reprised in a film role a couple years later. So lots of lots of theater in his early days uh, that led him to broadway into winning a tony early on not a lot of people win tonys yeah <laughs> not not many we've covered have won and he's won more than one tony which we'll get into that's going to lead us to his first major role 83's war games and rigby's going to talk about it yeah so war games is a 1983 film directed by john badham who's also done famous movies from the 70s and 80s like saturday night fever dracula blue thunder short circuit and Stakeout with uh, Richard Dreyfuss and Emilio Estevez, which is a funny movie. The Mighty Duck himself. Matthew Broderick plays a high school student named David in this, and he is a, a wisecracking uh, computer hacker who is basically a, a basically a computer nerd. You can tell he does nothing but play with his computers during the day. He, he finds ways to, to not go to school, get suspended. You know, the movie, the first 10 minutes of the movie, he's like hacking into his his school's report card so he can change his grade and change his grade from uh, from an F to an A. So that just gives you a kind of character that he is. He's he's really sharp, but he you can tell he's kind of aimless and just and just is a is a is a nerd. Basically, he's a computer geek, for lack of a better term. Where his computer obsession takes him is that Matthew Broderick accidentally hacks into a U.S. missile defense system Internet server and ends up playing a what he thinks is an artificial game of nuclear war domination uh, involving nuclear weapons. It turns out he's playing a artificial intelligence machine that has been programmed to simulate war and uh, conflict in order to make a decision whether for the United States to launch nuclear weapons. So what Matthew Broderick thinks is a harmless game is actually potentially going to lead to World War III inside the inside the missile command center. It's a really good movie in the sense that it's the concept of it is brilliant, I think, and it's really creative how they how they made Matthew Broderick. I mean, he's in every scene in this movie. He is like the top build, like main guy. He he controls the movie, controls the narrative. The only scene that I really don't think he's in is the opening one with Michael Madsen. Did you guys notice that he was one of the no. One of the NORAD uh, soldiers in the beginning of the movie, which Dude, is kind of cool. I restarted the movie because when I paused it, it said, you know, like on Amazon, they'll tell you the actors that are in a scene. Mm-hmm. Yep. The x-ray thing. Yeah. Right when the title came up, I was like, whoa, where did this like gun ex- escalation come from? Did I miss a line of dialogue? And I paused it and it said featuring Michael Madsen. I was like, wait, that's Michael Madsen. He looks like he's like 12 years old. Back to my original point. I think Matthew Broderick is in every every scene, which is really cool for him because it it opened up a lot of doors where he played 
you know, obviously more more humoristic, but he played a, a similar type high school character in Ferris Bueller. Twenty one years old at this point, he's he's that twenty one. Yeah, that's crazy, and he plays like a seventeen year old in the movie. So, really good job adapting to that role, and yeah, just an entertaining movie. I, I will admit that the first hour is better than the second. It kind of loses a little of its steam, I think. The first hour is awesome, though. Basically, the build up to when he's arrested by the FBI and brought to brought to the to where he hacked to see sort of the damage that he did and and to to give him that conflict of holy shit, what did I what did I actually do here? I want to mention I I got to see this at the theater when it came out. Oh wow! Oh nice. So I I got to see it back then. And the other thing is this is you know sort of the height of the Cold War. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that's something that a younger person yeah, that context they wouldn't know. The the Cold War to my generation is what I don't know gun drills are at schools now where it's like the shooter comes in and yeah, everybody's got to find their spot in the classrooms. I mean, we, we were dealing with Cold War stuff, like get under your desk, because, you know, just in case. Warren did say in our text chat that this is his favorite Matthew Broderick role. Yeah. And it happens to be his first major one. Yeah, he was he was great in it. Recommend the movie. Mm-hmm. Such a unique premise that, like, I was impressed as well. Five more years until that next review. That's six years, technically. First thing you see, 1985. He plays a role called Brother in 1918, which is a little bit of a precursor to his role in Glory, kind of a period piece. I started to watch it. Oh, no. His southern accent is so laughably bad that I quit about 20 minutes in. So this is my a couple DNFs for the Broderick episode, but this was one of them for me. Do you mean to tell me that the man who was born in New York and has never moved once in his whole life can't do accents other than New York accents. I'm not saying he can't do it now because I've seen him do really funny impressions of Marlon Brando and Donald Trump. Yeah, I think he's I think he's pretty good at impersonations. But I'm saying in 1984 when he filmed this movie that I don't think he was getting the best coaching on how to do a Southern accent <laughs> in a film. <laughs> Period piece from the early 1900s. His coach was Dick Van Dyke, who just masters so many wonderful accents. Oh, throwback. <laughs> there you go. Same year, he was in Lady Hawk as Philip, Philippe, I think, uh, a role that he has talked about. People will reference him randomly on the street, an early role with him and Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to it. 68 and 74 for rankings. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's got good ratings. Yeah. I think it's kind of a deep cut that, that people know about him from. Mm-hmm. 85 is busy. Like, coming off his Tony win in War Games, he's in Fairy Tale Theater, which we've talked about a bunch of times on this podcast. Shelley Duvall's show that basically redid a lot of fairy tales. And so he's in one about Cinderella, which is pretty cool. You can check that out on YouTube. But the big one, 1986, the role that has kind of is the thing he can't get away from in person and public wherever he goes and that he references constantly throughout his career his role as ferris and ferris bueller's day off a role that got him a golden globe nom way back in the mid 80s little john hughes action yep this is an iconic movie and an iconic role with this role you almost wonder if it hampered the rest of his career Hmm. because you start looking at some of the roles that we're going to talk about and it's almost like they wanted to get, like I said during the box office part, people wanted to see Ferris Bueller in different roles. They wanted to see Ferris Bueller. Interesting. He was great in this movie. Yes. It's still fun to watch. But I, I wonder if this stunted him. Yeah. Stunted yeah. His, his career. Yeah. I want to mention something. 
He wasn't part of the Brat Pack. No. He wasn't part of any other movies with Molly Ringwald or any of the other people you would associate with John Hughes films. This is kind of a one of. And in fact, it's it's unique in the sense that all three of the actors who played in this, I don't think they really had any other roles in the John Hughes films. And John Hughes, you know, he wasn't he wasn't like Anthony Michael Hall, who was showing up, you know, in at least two, if not three of the, the uh, John Hughes films. That's a good point. First of two Broderick films where a supporting character wears a Red Wings jersey prominently throughout the movie. So close to my heart for that. This movie's great. It still holds up. I rewatched it for the pod and it's just so light and fun and clever and like the humor just isn't dated, which is really hard for a lot of 80 80s movies Mm -hmm. kind of just with where we've progressed as a society. And we're lucky in that this movie is one of those movies that just like keeps it light the whole time and is enjoyable and the one liners work and he's so charming in it. It, it's just really, it's one of those movies that I don't know if I've ever met someone who's like, Oh, I don't, I don't like that movie. Someone might, just not be interested, but I've never met a single person who's like, I hate Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I don't either. Well, it was John Hughes' love letter to the city of Chicago. Yep. He's got an antagonistical relationship with his sister and the principal, mm-hmm. but he doesn't fight with them. No. He like beats them with charm. And so you, it's so easy to cheer for him and pull for him to get to win. There's no negative vibes towards him because of, because he's winning. No. Every once in a while in the Chicago area, you can take a tour where they will go and visit all the sites that this movie took place. <laughs> There's probably people listening to this who didn't realize that the quote that everyone from their senior yearbook put of life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop yeah. to look around, you might miss it. They're like, that's from Ferris Bueller. You're like, yeah, it's just everyone's quoted it yep. every single yearbook. Your friend Jeff didn't come up with that. Like, it wasn't <laughs> <Yeah>. him. <laughs> Bueller. So. Bueller. 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 Yeah, how many times have you heard some, someone pretend to be Ben Stein going Bueller? Yeah. Bueller. Like it, it's, so it's a role that has followed him around his entire career, and we'll reference it multiple times. I know we could talk about it forever, but I'm going to keep us going. Matthew Broderick lost a lot of roles early in his career to um, this young up-and-coming actor known by the name of Michael J. Fox. Ooh. Oh, wow. And so I looked up Michael J. Fox and like Matthew Broderick, and it's a quote from... Michael J. Fox that says, I almost quit acting because I lost out on all these good roles that I wanted because this guy named Matthew Broderick kept getting them. And it's so funny because both actors are like, dude, I keep losing roles to the other guy. And Matthew J. Fox is the one who's like, I almost quit because I kept losing to Matthew Broderick. Did you say it was him and Jason Statham? Yes, yes, yes. Jason Jason Statham, correct. (laughs) The Rock and Matthew Broderick have been going for the same roles. (laughs) Important fact. So he does Ferris Bueller. He starts secretly dating Jennifer Grey, and this this fact is important given what comes next in his personal life. So a a year later, he is in Ireland. He's with Jennifer Grey, his secret girlfriend at the time. Are you talking about his sister from Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Yes. His sister from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, yep. It's called acting. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. They are dating in real life. They are in Ireland vacationing. He is driving. He accidentally drifts across, gets in a very severe car wreck with a woman and her daughter. Both of them die pretty pretty much right on impact. The story is that as he's getting pulled away, he broke his leg in there. They both suffered injuries, but both of them survived, obviously. But as he's getting pulled away from the wreck, he kept saying, did I hurt them? Did I hurt them? 
Now, my understanding is that he was agreed to do a meeting with their family at one point in time. I don't know if that ever happened years later, but it is it's definitely a stain on his career in life. At this point, it sounds like the, the family has forgiven him. Yeah, but it's it's still something that we have not seen from anybody we've covered up to this point. It was investigated and he eventually was just let out on bail and was fined 175 bucks. And that's when it got picked up by the news and it started, the family even started, you know, threatening potential legal lawsuit, even though they didn't follow through with it because it was just insulting to read. Yeah, Like if the guy is sober and he's just driving poorly the law is limited to a certain point. It doesn't make make it less tragic or less odd that there is no cause other than being a bad driver, but they couldn't press charges against him criminally. And, and, and that's something we haven't mentioned that they did not find any substance abuse. So he was, he was sober when this He happened. was sober. Yeah. We talk a lot about mental health nowadays. So in 80s, this is 87, right? Mm-hmm. he's one of the biggest stars in the world and he's 24 years old. And now he has to deal with this. Like mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to deal with that in my forties, let alone in my twenties. Well, and to your point, Jennifer gray only acted for a couple more years. And she said that that incident affected her so emotionally that she couldn't, yep. she, she couldn't handle being in the limelight yeah. and dealing with that. So she stepped away from the world of acting a couple of years later. Well, she put baby in a corner. Indeed. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is true. And no one's supposed to do that. No. So. Explicitly said. But that year, his next film project was in Project X. He played Jimmy alongside Helen Hunt, a movie about chimpanzees and military testing. This is a pretty decent film. I watched it for this podcast. I didn't mind it. Not about the party. Not a, It's not a movie about college parties. Only the party one. I was just thinking to myself, man, Helen Hunt has a wide array of topics of movies she's mm-hmm. made. From yep. monkeys to twisters and everything in between. <laughs> she plays the caretaker for a, a chimp um, named Virgil, who ba- she is told is supposed to be given up to a zoo, but he's actually sent to a military testing facility where they are testing radiation on chimpanzees to see how long they can handle radiation in a flight simulator because they're preparing for pilots to be able to fly during like nuclear times. And so the ethical dilemma is that Matthew Broderick gets reassigned because he's a reckless pilot and he starts to create an affection for this particular chimpanzee because the chimpanzee is going to die. Like if he gets put through this uh, experiment. So it's like a, a heist film at the end where they, they get the the monkey. And I, I texted you guys in the group chat. It's one of the best endings I've ever seen because they they take off with Virgil and another chimp in the, the plane because Broderick's a, a pilot. They get stopped before they can take off. Helen Hunt and Broderick are being held up. And then you look and they've been training this this chimpanzee to fly a plane through a simulator for months. He and the other chip climb to the front. The chimp gives the middle finger to the, <laughs> the like the general, and then flies the plane away. Oh wow! They're they're just like us. Yeah, <laughs> takes off in the plane. Doesn't make it terribly far. Crashes in the Everglades, but then they come and they find that the both chimps survive, and they're just surviving in the wild at that point in time. It's a Planet of the Apes prequel. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. He does the film adaptation of Torch Song Trilogy. Also in 88, he does the film adaptation of Bloxy Blues. Character who plays Wilson. He plays a virgin Jew in a role alongside Christopher Walken, who 
took some creative liberties with his role as a drill sergeant, basically rerolled the character from the play with without really any express per- permission or consent on that, but he decided he was going to play it different. Sounds about right for him. It's an interesting one. It's not a great movie. That next John Hughes movie, She's Having a Baby in 88, that uncredited role, and then he hosts SNL in 88, his first of a couple times hosting, which makes sense. He's coming off really big projects there in the mid-80s, so... Usually you get brought on to SNL if you're doing stuff like that. And again, referencing his age. I mean, 25 years old and hosting Saturday Night Live in the 80s. Yeah, that might have been the biggest show on TV. And then his next big film was 89's Glory, plays Colonel Gould. Many people have said that they believe Denzel deserved an award, uh, Academy Award for either this or for Malcolm X and essentially just got it later as like a are bad for not giving it to you earlier for training day. Yeah. He's phenomenal in glory. Yeah. He's the best character. Yep. They said that Broderick, Broderick looked a lot like Colonel Gould. And that's a, a big reason why he got the part is because he has a striking resemblance to the historical character being featured in the movie. Interesting. Is this his first like real acting dramatic role on the screen? Uh, uh War games. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. This heavy, yes. I mean, this isn't as heavy as War Games. You're right. <laughs> the the threat of nuclear disaster is definitely pretty heavy. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you on that one. That scene where he goes into the infirmary and he's like basically lights that dude up because they won't give him shoes. It's some some of the better acting I've seen him do, where he just mm-hmm. he he starts tossing shit around and raising stink like a lot of reason the movie works is because of Matthew Broderick and his turn as a character. To not take pay when everybody else is going to. Mm-hmm. Good movie. And then finally, the last movie we'll mention before largest critic app is Family Business. He plays Adam alongside Sean Connery and Dustin Hoffman. And that's going to take us to the fascinating film, The Freshman from 1990, a movie where Broderick played alongside none other than Marlon Brando in a really interesting reprisal of his character from previous films. So before we get started, Denzel Washington, Connery, Dustin Hoffman. I mean, my goodness, he's he's playing with like the greatest of the greatest. Yeah. Yes. In the late 80s, for sure. Early in the career. Enter Marlon Brando. Yeah. Enter Marlon Brando. Ever heard of him, right? (laughs) (laughs) The Freshman was actually my movie to review, and I had never heard of it before. So I make that joke knowing full well that I've never heard of this. I actually thought it was The Graduate. And that's when I realized they're not the same movie. (laughs) No. The Freshman, let me see the review score we have here. Critics give it a 94%, which is outstanding. Audience gives it a 61%. It is a PG comedy about the mafia, and it's got a 94 and a 61. So when I tell you that this is unlike most movies you'll see, I am not shortchanging. It was... Truly a fascinating watch because of how unexpected the entire movie was. Quick synopsis of the plot. An NYC film school student played by Broderick accepts a job with a local mobster, actually he's kind of forced into it, who resembles a famous cinema godfather, a.k.a. Marlon Brando's legitimately playing Don Corleone, just with a different name. And he takes him under his wing, kind of just demanding loyalty a.k.a. I'll do you a favor, and then you owe me a favor. Classic offer you can't refuse. The Freshman's sort of like a comedy drama, but I was really impressed by how in there they sprinkled these self-aware barbs 
uh, specifically at film analysis. So when he's in class in film school, his teacher is very pompous and very pretentious and a lot of how film Twitter is today. And they're breaking down scene by scene Godfather. And they are not showing any scenes with Marlon Brando. And then in the next scene, Marlon Brando is essentially playing the Godfather by a different name. And it's a comedy. And so it is interesting to see like a movie be so self-aware um, at the time. And so that, I think, is one of the reasons why critics enjoyed it a lot more than audiences. Because, as we've discussed on here before, when someone... Does it, when a writer or a director makes a film that is really good at mocking Hollywood and it is, it's done in a way that Hollywood appreciates, they score it substantially higher than the audience because the audience isn't aware of some of these jokes that they're missing. Or they are aware and they just don't think it's that funny because it doesn't relate to them as much. I think I fall a little bit more in the latter in that I am probably closer to the critic side. I mean, I'm sorry, the audience side around a 60, but that's not a negative. A 64 comedy is, is it's good. Like it's, it's worth watching. It is odd, but it's not one of those things where you watch it and you're mad. It's, you know, like the, there's some eighties comedies that just don't hold up at all, or you never understood why they were funny. Same with some dramas. Um, and then when I watched this, I was like, actually, I am somewhat enjoying this. I think Marlon Brando carries a lot of it. But it's like Ferris Bueller meets The Godfather in that Matthew Broderick is essentially playing that Ferris Bueller character. So, Craig, when you said that earlier, like, you see that in this. It's, it is he is kind of making a joke of the situation, but, you know, he understands the seriousness of it. But he's make you know, there's so much levity introduced throughout the entire premise what's the reptile they're trying to smuggle komodo dragon komodo dragon that's it yes it's a komodo dragon and it's like he gets caught up with the mob in that like taxi driver tries to bring him from the train to school and the taxi driver is works for the mob and just robs him the moment he gets to school which i did think was funny <laughs> because he's like you know you got to be safe out here bubble and he's just having a casual conversation and the second he gets out of the car he doesn't let him grab his bags. He just peels out, which I thought was a great way to start. And so once that happened, I kind of like started, all right, let me focus in on what's going on here because I didn't expect to enjoy this movie as much as I did. I don't think it's a 94, but I do think it's a good movie. And the, the stories about Marlon Brando, I think, are so fascinating beyond the scenes. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. While they're filming, he's got an earpiece in and Broderick would talk about how like in between takes, he's just like yelling at his assistant, his secretary, be like, you have to feed me the lines faster. Yeah. <laughs> And so he's like, the first time I've acted with somebody, he's getting lines fed into their ear by somebody else. This was when Marlon Brando was fully embracing being somewhat of a recluse and yeah, living on his island. Yep. People were just desperate to see him back in a movie. And when he came back and he's parroting himself (laughs) and he's doing a good job parroting himself, people loved it. Now, I think he is fantastic in this movie. And I actually think Matthew Broderick is fantastic in this movie. I just think some of the jokes fall flat. That's why I don't give it a 90, but I think 60 is a, a, a passing grade when it comes to movies, maybe not when it comes to grad school. <laughs> that was a really good review, James, and I'm glad you said it, because I haven't seen this. I got confused because his character's name is Clark Kellogg, mm-hmm. and the movie's called The Freshman, so I thought it was about famous basketball announcer and former Ohio State <laughs> basketball player. 
Of course. His biopic. Of course. We, we, we all came to that same conclusion, yeah, it's, too. It's when he was in the mafia, yes. Of course. <laughs> Before our next review, between 91 and 93, there's really only one project, to, a major project to note, and that's Out on a Limb, a movie that's available online. You can check it out. I don't think it's really worth checking out unless you want to see some early John C. Riley in that one. So if you're a big fan of his, he plays kind of a rough-and-tumble character in that movie that I think is worth scoping. But let's not waste any time because we want to get to largest audience gap, which is Chip's review. And if you're new here, our our Munson comes in, our guest Munson takes a review um, that normally would be covered by somebody else. And in this case, you know, we kind of keep the rotation going. He got largest audience gap. And that in is 1993's The Thief and the Cobbler, a movie that has a split of 50-74 on Rotten Tomatoes. So 74% for the audience score. And Chip's going to tell us all about the legend of The Thief and the Cobbler. Oh, my goodness. Who do I get to thank for this film? My goodness. The rotation. That's what you think. <laughs> I went in totally blind as far as seeing this this uh, film. I had I didn't read anything about it. I basically, I basically pressed play and got to experience it. And <clears throat> I'm glad I read about it afterwards because I appreciate it more than I did when I initially watched it. So I said this movie, 25 out of 100. I did not give this good ratings when I, <laughs> I watched it because I didn't feel... It seemed to really miss on, on so many levels. But I'm, I'm going to defend this film in just a moment. But let me, let me explain why I'm initially was... I said, well, when was this released? And it said 1993. And you have to recognize what we were watching that led up to this film. So Howard Ashman was brought in to Disney. He convinced them to start working uh, like Broadway musicals. And so we got The Little Mermaid. We got Beauty and the Beast. We got um, Aladdin. And then, you know, right afterwards, we get The Lion King. So we have three Ashman perfect Disney-type films leading up. And then we have this film called The Teeth the thief and the cobbler which was not disney but you know that's the 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 level you're looking for but when i when i started reading about it i said oh this was a pet project for um for a for richard williams and this was started back in the 1960s so 1964 is when this was originally conceived and it totally looks like a 1964 type of film it's kind of rambly it's got kind of mixed messages it doesn't really, the story doesn't really hold interest. And if you've watched cartoons from the 60s and the 70s, you kind of get that picture where they, they were telling a story, they kind of had a story. This was hand-drawn, which once again, things, Beauty and the Beast introduced computer animation into it to kind of, the, if you remember, there was a dance scene. So the times had passed. But this was an, completed because Richard Williams agreed to film Roger Rabbit, who framed Robert Roger Rabbit. And this was sort of a, a payoff of, of that, where Steven Spielberg and Disney said, hey, listen, if you, little, you know. Little quid pro quo. Yeah. You, you, you help us do this, which certainly was a very enjoyable film. They'll help complete this film and release it. And what we also get from this is we get a number of different versions, but the version that we ended up watching 
um, Harvey Weinstein had part of it. Yeah. And he, he said, listen, we need to bring in better actors for this or more marketable actors. They brought in, you know, who we're talking about today, uh, Matthew Broderick. They brought in Jennifer Beale yep. and they brought in um, Vincent Price <laughs> and they brought in Jonathan Winters. Vincent Price's last film role ever, too. I looked on his IMDb of 200 plus. This was his last one. And, and he sounded like an older man in this. He did. This <laughs> You're telling me Donald Pleasance didn't cut it? The star of Halloween. <laughs> no, and, uh, that's right. <laughs> the grand part of this, though, is you know, don't compare it to Aladdin. Jonathan Winters and uh, Robin Williams were really good friends, if not best friends. Mm-hmm. And they w- basically asked Jonathan Winters. I mean, I, I didn't so to make up ad lib a role and basically do Robin Williams. And unfortunately, he just wasn't that type of comedian at that time. Certainly a very uh, charming and enjoyable person. But this was a terrible mumbling role for him. <laughs> yeah, even though the last scene is just him mumbling into the camera. You're oh, like, in, uh... in fact, I, I kept thinking, is this Thurston, Thurston Howell the you Third? Know, I, I, <laughs> I, I was mixing up the actor. I was trying to identify who this was when I was, when I was initially watching it. This is a story that they changed the location from like a golden city to Baghdad. We have to be, you know, aware of why that change may have happened. Desert Storm was in 1991, and uh, you know, if this if this film is going to take place in Iraq, certainly it's that that is important to it. Ultimately, this is an oddity in the world of animation. It's one of those lost films that people will talk about. If you get the opportunity to see it, you're most likely you're going to be disappointed. But it certainly uh, shows the how far animation went from the 1960s up into the 1990s. Yeah, fascinating backstory behind this one. Yeah. More so than the movie itself, which has a ton of parallels to Aladdin. When you watch it, it's it's constructed very similarly. Interesting. That's crazy. It's a wild story. Yeah. The story is far better. No question. The, the reading about it is far better than the movie. Than the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Nothing says Matthew Broderick in Baghdad like Matthew doing the uh, the voiceover for a, a story about that region of the world. So. Yeah, I didn't really touch on that. He was <laughs> miscast in this film. Yes. He's got an interesting voice. In the sense that he is, he sounds like a young man, but not a young man. And he's, he, he doesn't sound like an old man. And there's no way that Disney would have put him into, you know, the, the young prince role of Aladdin. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it's just, it just, it just, it doesn't fit him real well. So we'll, we'll keep it running here. 94, the next year. Another animated picture, the one, the big one that we talked about earlier, The Lion King, where he plays the adult version of Simba. Doesn't do any of the singing, but he does does the voiceover work for Simba. The movie won two Oscars, both music-related. I love The Lion King. It is, I think, the first movie I can remember making me cry, and that was before I was aware that Disney kills the parents in every movie. So obviously, as a child, that was the most traumatic thing I'd ever seen in my life. Yep. Anyone who could get their name tied to a movie of this prestige is should be proud and impressed. I didn't know until we did this episode that that was Broderick's voice because he doesn't do the singing. I think if he had done the singing, I would have associated it with him, but he doesn't. So I didn't. 
I didn't even realize there was a difference in the voices. Once again, Matthew Broderick himself with the greatest cast, right? Yes, of course. Nathan Lane, they ended up obviously working on the producers together, but they were in this movie together as well. They were? Yep, somebody he's worked with quite a bit. A Life in the Theater, 94 as well. He got a primetime Emmy nom for his role in that. And then to cap off 94, he was in The Road to Wellville as William Lightbody. <laughs> no more smell than a buttermilk biscuit. <laughs> An Alan Parker film alongside Sir Anthony Hopkins, John Cusack, and a variety of other humans in one of the most bizarre films I've seen in a while for this podcast. <laughs> Sir Anthony Hopkins has two fake buck teeth. He plays a man who is, it was like early 1900s, convincing people to like live a clean lifestyle. And he basically has like his own little camp where they do all sorts of weird treatments to themselves. And Matthew Broderick's, he's the main character in the movie. Well, if you eat the cereal, you don't have to eat the other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) What a bizarre movie. It's streaming all over the place. So I I recommend you go check it out if you just want to see Sir Anthony Hopkins do something very different than what you've seen him do ever before. 95 appears on Frasier, like many others we've talked about. Also 95, he got another Tony W, another Tony win for his role as best actor in How to Succeed in Business without really trying. That one is a musical as well, but that's another huge play in Broadway. So like he's getting Tony knobs for like major, major plays. I don't know if we've had another Tony winner up to this point. He's got two and it's not even the Willennium yet. So he's he's doing incredible <laughs> go. stuff. Got it. Got it, baby. But he t- he tries something a little different in 96. He directs his first picture, his first and only picture, in a movie, Infinity. He also stars in the movie as Richard Feynman, a biopic of the Nobel Prize winning physicist, Richard Feynman. This movie took a massive beating in the box office as well. I don't, did I bring it up at the beginning? No. You mentioned a bunch of other movies I wasn't going to mention. I didn't bring it up because of his directing and producing of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But $5 million budget, it brought home $195,000. Wow. Yeah, it's another stinker. Mm-hmm. I will tell you this. After watching it, it failed for a couple of reasons. One, it's heavy on narration and exposition, and his Ooh. character does most of it. Okay. And it gets old. It gets very old after a while. And also, cinematography-wise, it's rough. It looks like a movie... That was filmed in the 80s, but it was filmed in the mid-90s. To defend it, from a studio standpoint, $5 million on a film that could bring in, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever it brings in, seems like a pretty reasonable gamble. Yeah, I agree. It's not a lot of money. Especially with his name attached to it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. I mean, if it, if it hit, yeah. you know, it's $100 million, it's $50 million, it's $30 million. It's $5 million as a gamble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then we get to the movie that Case really wanted to talk about if we were covering Broderick, and that is his role as Steven in The Cable Guy. It's just a movie we talked about on the Jim Carrey episode. Oh, it's one of my favorite movies. I love this movie. And he's pretty good in it, too. Oh, yeah. He plays off of Jim Carrey pretty well. Talking about Steven? Yes, I am. <laughs> to me, it's impressive that there's only one scene where we can see him laughing at Jim Carrey and not the whole movie. because. <laughs> You know, he sells his relationship with his with his girlfriend, I think, right? And then he yes. he sells this like kind of take advantage of Jim Carrey, yeah, you know, kind of attitude and then plays off of it. So I I mean I think he's good at it and it's tough to play off of Jim Carrey, especially in the nineties. Well, you know, probably the second best Star Trek scene outside Galaxy Quest. Ever. 
<laughs> ever. I love Cable Guy. I realized if you guys go back and listen to the Jim Carrey episode that I didn't realize the amount of hate that this movie has. And to be so firmly on the like side and to realize that's about 50 50 of the people who hate this movie as well. I was shocked by this. And I think it's because I was too young to fully understand, like, remember the kind of reception it received. And so when I rewatch it, I still think it's hilarious. And I'm still shocked hilarious. how many people hate this movie. They're all wrong, James. They're all wrong. <laughs> I know. 97, he, he marries the love of his life and is still married to her, Sarah Jessica Parker, the star, the megastar of Sex in the City, Carrie Bradshaw. You could make a case that she's bigger than he is. Yeah, this is probably one of the more famous, one of the more famous Hollywood couples. I agree. Mm-hmm. I feel like people just know who both of these are and, and mm-hmm. you kind of always see them together on the red carpet. They're just a very notable, notable couple in Hollywood today. Yep, they have three kids. We got, I think, like an 18 or 19 year old couple twin, twin girls. Yep. I appreciate every time they're at because they've been together for like 25 years now mm-hmm. you know and that's rare in hollywood it's i mean it's rare in normal life but it's also rare and it's more rare in hollywood and i really appreciate how every time they get interviewed now people ask them about their relationship and like what's the secret and in doing research for this like their answers are so genuine because they're like i don't know i really like him and he really likes me i don't know what the secret is like like people are like oh well how do you work through this and like uh I don't think we're the right people to ask. I don't know. I just really like hanging out with him. Like, I don't, and, and I was like, that's such a real answer where it's not like, yeah, we're not writing a book. We're not yeah, going on tour anytime it's soon. It's no self-help thing. It's no, or, you know, here's how you get through the hardships of marriage. It was just like, I wish I could tell you the secret. I don't have the answer. And, and you recognize that Hollywood or acting, there's, there's a better way because they work both on Broadway and in yeah. Hollywood. Mm-hmm great distinction it's such an up and down industry so there could be a period of time where you have two or three years where you you don't have a role you're just kind of working through projects and that's got to take a mental toll on you and certainly could could have a, a tough part to your marriage and then there are times where things are going so well like certainly sex in the city that just blows up and it's like superstardom mm-hmm. and once again having to deal with the emotional part about the good parts and the bad part of that certainly could be uh, challenging. Probably helps too that SJP's biggest show was Sex in the City. It's filmed in New York, so she doesn't really have to leave. True. That makes life easier for her in maintaining family, relationship, kids, and things like that. And he's doing Broadway. So they're there and they're not traveling. I mean, he was traveling some, but not as much as maybe other actors living in LA and going all over the place. But she stayed at, She stayed with him after the next movie he did. <laughs> the movie where they destroy Madison Square Garden, the uh, the home of James's beloved New York Knicks and Godzilla. Dude, I remember not liking this movie when I was young and the ripe age for this. But the media tour that this movie went on, it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. This was one of the first like event movies that I can remember where it was like every marketing for every fast food place was Godzilla. And it was every commercial. And the movie itself is like if Jurassic Park was in New York City and that's it. And it rained the whole time. Like the movie itself is such a dud and it starts off good. I watched over the span of like the last few days because I had to pause it because the middle, the second act is so unnecessary And it's just like a full hour of them running around Madison Square Garden 
with CGI lizards chasing them. It's not entertaining. <laughs> I went opening night to see this. Ooh. I went with a whole group of friends, and we all left. We're like, oh my goodness, that was awful. Is there any worse feeling than when you go to a movie that you're amped up with a bunch of friends and it sucks? Oh my, afterwards, you don't even want to talk. You're like embarrassed. Like, I can't believe we went to go see that. Oh my God. Let's just go drink. Ugh. Yeah, it's this stuff. Especially if it's your idea. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Fucking drag me here, you piece of shit. 98, another li- the second Lion King movie. So he's reprising that symbol role. Hosts SNL for the second time, same year. I mean, Godzilla and Lion King 2, that makes sense. Those are huge blockbuster films. Well, I don't know about Lion King 2, but. Godzilla was a big blockbuster, so it would make sense he would host SNL. And then one of Rigby's favorites, 99's Election, alongside Reese Witherspoon in a uh, in a battle for student government. Supremacy. Student body president. I was going to say supremacy, but I didn't know if that worked. Dude, I'll just say that both Broderick and Reese Witherspoon in this movie are so good. Dude, thanks for the recommendation. It was fun. I would not have watched it if you didn't say that when we first found out we were doing Broderick, because I watched it and I was... Thoroughly impressed for a movie that looks exactly like a movie I would never want to watch. <laughs> awesome. I, I, I'll agree, I agree with that. I really liked it. This was a film that I would not have picked out, but I'm glad I watched it. Look at that, Rigby. It's an Alexander Payne movie, and he's from Omaha, and that's where the movie takes place, and it yeah. just nails the Midwest perfectly. He plays a teacher who is has a feud with, with Reese Witherspoon, who's running for student body president in the movie, and... I would say he he starts out like a good Samaritan, but by the end of it, he's like a cynical asshole. So he his the whole point of the movie is that the, their feud makes him take a turn for the worse because of Reese Witherspoon's character. He throws the election for Chris Klein. Chris Klein. Chris Klein. Yeah. Chris Klein's goofy ass character, who's like the dumbest version of all of his high school characters. <laughs> so all of everybody is. It's, that's so a low stupid. bar. I know, but it's so funny because like he always plays like a dumb high school student, and this is by far the dumbest of the high the school students. The most of the yeah, it's the most. You know, part. do what you did last time. Just be dumber. Yeah, just be <laughs> more dumb. Yes. <laughs> Rigby, what's his last line at the end of the movie when he sees Reese, who's now a politician? Years Who the later, fuck does she think she is? Yeah, and he throws like, like he throws like a chocolate malt at her, or like a soda at her. At, at a, her at a limo. At a limo. So yeah. funny. <laughs> And then he just runs off, and that's the end of the movie. Hey, you asshole! (laughs) (laughs) One of the reasons I think I enjoyed the movie is because it's such a departure from, like, the normal Matthew Broderick role, where he's, like, the nice, meek, but definitely nice guy. And in this, it's, like, he's not a nice guy. He's an unethical Yeah, he's he's polite. It's different. (laughs) He's supposed to be, like, this wholesome sort of Midwestern, you know, history teacher and he cheats on his wife and jerks off to porn in the middle of the night like just like (laughs) stuff that obviously you know is like you said it's it's a takeaway from the norm of what we would think of as a a wholesome movie like this and he tries to ruin a young girl's life rigby don't you forget about that yes exactly do you think that's the reason why he took this role because it's not a nice guy Uh, probably i mean most most of the time he's usually thrown yeah Thrown into a nice guy role. Yep, very different for him. All right, same year. The last one we will cover before we get into highest critic score is 1999's Inspector Gadget, where he plays Inspector Gadget. 
in a movie that I wish he had never played Inspector Gadget. Because yeah. holy shit, what a monumental piece of shit this movie yeah, is. Yeah, it was awful. And we thought Godzilla was regrettable. <laughs> I'm so glad he wasn't in the sequel. I'll give him credit for letting uh, French Stewart take on the role in the sequel. Oh, French Stewart? <laughs> 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 you know, Inspector Gadget was a cartoon that had a very distinguished, a distinguishable voice to it mm-hmm. and a, a tone and everything. It's certainly, I mean, Matthew Broderick didn't fit that at all. No, and it was not a great character choice. Isn't the like running joke in the cartoon that despite having all those gadgets, he's like an idiot, yeah. right? Like, yeah, accurate. It's like he's got all the tools, but it's his niece that's solving all the crimes, right? So like, Yep. While Matthew Broderick has played a lot of roles, you haven't really seen him as like just yeah, an like idiot. A, He's always been like the wiser yeah. beyond his years guy. Like a bumbling fool. Yeah. He's like a, yeah, I think that's a great point. Inspector Clouseau. Yeah. <laughs> fucking, fucking shit. And he plays two different characters, really, in this movie. He plays Inspector Gadget, then he plays like the robot version of Inspector Gadget with fake teeth. So he's he's really having to work to to hustle this one out. But if you want to check it out, it's one of Michelle Trachtenberg's first ever roles, which I thought was delightful because I always remember her as the girl in Eurotrip who makes out with her brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, highest critic score, the Willennium hits, it's 2000. We're going to talk about, well, Case is going to talk about You Can Count On Me, a movie that we discussed on the Lower Linney episode. I'll tell you what, guys, I'm on a hot streak because this, this is a good movie. I remember him saying this is one of his favorite movies. In fact, I think he might have said this is his favorite movie, didn't he? He said third third, third favorite movie. He's of all right. Time. It's a really good movie. It's a very basic story and premise, but driven by great performances by Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo. The two of them, have, they're great together as brother and sister. I would summarize this movie as the most realistic Hallmark movie ever. If you took out all the cliche bullshit plots and bad endings of a Hallmark movie and you made them realistic, this is the movie you'd get. Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo are siblings whose parents are killed in a car accident at the beginning of the movie. We fast forward to adulthood and you can tell that Ruffalo's character, his, his life really never got on track because of the, losing their parents. And what's interesting is as we watch Laura Linney's character throughout the movie, you can see very subtle causes to to some of the issues she's having as it relates to her parents passing away. And it was very easy to watch despite dealing with some pretty tough topics. The movie was directed by Kenneth Lonergan, who also wrote and directed Manchester by the Sea, which we'll talk about later. I thought the way that he told this story and, and directed this movie was really interesting, despite it being a really typical story. You know, basically a single mother in a small town with a crappy job trying to do her best to raise her young son while also having to deal with a pain in the ass little brother. You know, it's, that's a pretty standard plot, right? As it relates to Matthew Broderick, he plays Brian, who is a, I think he's a new bank manager. That seems right, doesn't it, Kyle? Yeah. So he's the new bank manager yeah. at a bank where Laura Linney plays the loan officer and, and her character's name is Sammy. The two of them have just a really strained relationship. And to be honest, you know, it's it's because of Broderick. He's just this swarmy, pretentious prick of a boss, and, and he nails the role. He's he's really good in it. The two are at odds regularly, and they fight about dumb shit like computer screens having too much color on them, and, and he's he's on her ass about everything. He's a micromanager. Oh, he's awful. Everything. As the movie goes on, we, we start to understand that he's like that at work because he's just completely emasculated by his wife and their and their home life. I thought Broderick's character 
storyline was really well developed during the movie, and I, th- I thought he moved that along really well. It's, it's an obvious subplot to the bigger story, which is Laura Linney's character and then her brother. Like I said, I think Broderick does a really good job with his role. It's derivative a little bit of uh, Election, maybe, but a little bit more weaselly. Definitely a good watch. If you haven't seen this, check it out. 95.88 on Rotten Tomatoes. It's it's universally loved by critics and audiences. So I'd probably line up with the audience on that at an 88. And this is not normally my typical movie either. Like, No, no. It's Laura Linney's incredible. She's un- unbelievable. I raved about it in that episode. This is a big reason why she got such a high score for me, because she is so dramatically capable. Rigby, you didn't watch it? Because I know you said you wanted to because you like Lana. I didn't get to. I know. The day we do Ruffalo, third time's a charm. You're going to get Absolutely. to Absolutely. Big fan of Ruffalo, and I, I'm dedicating myself to watching it that day. You'd like it. That's highest critic score. Let's keep it moving. 01 to 05, four-year gap here. 2001, he's on Broadway for the producers. I'm not going to talk about that, the Broadway side, because we'll talk about the film adaptation here in a moment. But before there, there's a couple-year gap there between that and the next major one, which is The Stepford Wives, a movie that Warren rec- offered that he had done DVD for us if we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I haven't seen The Stepford Wives, so maybe I should have dri- driven to Cincinnati. and got The original <laughs> Stepford Wives is, is creepy. This one is, I don't know why they made it. It's awful. It's dreadful. Bad. Okay. Yeah. This, is, this is an awful film. I'm glad they didn't commit to like one way or the other between like it being like like a quirky comedy or actually being like a creepy horror movie and they just kind of like played the middle and the whole time it just stunk yeah identity crisis is what yeah. i hear okay let's talk about something a little bit better and that's his role as leo in the producers in 05 alongside nathan lane somebody he's worked with a couple times broderick's showing off those singing pipes and he's okay i don't think he's the best singer in the world in my humble opinion but Nathan Lane steals the show from him 100%. Yeah, yeah I was, I was going to say he is so outshined by Nathan Lane that I felt like when I was watching this movie that like the scenes that focus specifically on him, I felt like were like taking me out of it. Which is funny because the original producers is Zero Mustel and uh, Gene Wilder. And Gene Wilder is like one of the funniest people in mm-hmm. Hollywood history. And like... Just like in that movie, Zero Mustel's character, or just like in the remake, Zero Mustel's character overtakes that performance. And Matthew Broderick, yeah, oh, I really? mean he's he's just like Nathan Lane in that version, just like over the top, like ridiculous, like you know, scene mm-hmm. stealer in every everyone he's in. One so, of the okay. things that caught me off guard about this movie when I was getting ready for it, I was shocked that this lost money. On top of that, it was only a fifty-one critic and uh, only sixty-three audience. For how much people talk about this movie. I would have thought one of those numbers would have been higher. Yeah. Oh five, he's in Strangers with Candy alongside PSH and Chris Pratt. Quite the quite the rat pack there of actors. And yeah. he joined the likes of Jim Carrey, David Spade, and others getting his star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame in two thousand six. The only time you'll ever compare Jim Carrey and David Spade <laughs> in the same bucket. <laughs> it hurt himself. Right. All right. So two thousand six. The year that I graduated high school was also the same year that Deck the Halls came to theaters, and it is going to be his lowest critic score. And I'm going to share some thoughts on it with you all. And I would love to hear your thoughts on the back end. Why does it, does it qualify for lowest critic score? Oh boy, does it. Yep. It's got a 28 meta score. It's breakdown on Rotten Tomatoes is 630. So not good across the board. Universally hated by audiences and critics alike. It's directed by John Whitesell, who directed cinematic classics like Big Mama's House, 
Malibu's Most Wanted, <laughs> C-Spot Run, the Clarissa Explains It All movie, and a boatload of random television. Malibu's Most Wanted. Oh, boy. So you know where this is going. You find your niche in Hollywood, you stick with it. Stay in your lane, man. Yes, Stay in your lane and get paid. And there's a chance he didn't even do the original Big Mama's House. It might have just been the sequel, the, the second and third ones, and I'm just assuming the original. And in that case, I apologize to that director because that's probably a, a marginally better film. This movie shouldn't be called Deck the Halls. It should just be called Fragile Masculinity because that's 100% the entire plot of Deck the Halls. Has anybody else seen Deck the Halls or am I the only one? Sadly, I got to see it this year. I haven't seen it, but I have Fragile Masculinity, so I'm excited to hear your review. <laughs> I always get this confused with, uh, is Danny DeVito in this one? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. I always get this confused with the Jamie Lee Curtis Christmas one that we did. Christmas with, oh, with, Christmas the, cranks. with the Cranks. Yeah, I always get those confused. Yep. Christmas with the Cranks. They're both, they're both terrible. They're both equally both shitty. Very bad. They're, bad movies. They're both bad. Is uh, struggling with not feeling important in his family, in life. He just doesn't feel like he's, he's getting the credit he deserves. So he decides in a moment of a uh, light bulb moment with his daughters because they're looking at a website where you can see things from space. He decides I'm going to light my house so bright with Christmas lights that, that someone's going to be able to see it from space from one of these satellites. And that is now my new goal in life to make me feel important and seen. And that is the entire crux and premise for this film. It sounds fucking stupid because it's stupid. Have you ever heard of the plot of a movie and you just say, wow, that is like, exactly my story <laughs> dames that's that what dames, life. dames says that after every movie he watches <laughs> i know guys this is my story it's the typical hollywood christmas story where they just they're it's just sort of mean-spirited and totally I, I don't it's 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 meant for slapstick it's meant for fun but it just misses on such a, a massive level and the premise is so far-fetched that it loses you almost immediately he's married to kristen chenoweth i mean come on yes it was <laughs> gorgeous in the movie absolutely gorgeous and he has two like six foot one twin daughters and you're like what are they doing in the casting here? <laughs> How is this possible? They look like the neighbor. <laughs> Two gorgeous blonde daughters. No wonder he felt so fragile, Kyle. <laughs> oh my God. Broderick plays the neighbor who is kind of like, he's carved himself the role of being like the Christmas guy. So people come to him to consult around Christmas. And so that's what makes him feel important. And Danny Vito comes in and kind of starts taking his thunder because he's doing all this really cool stuff with his house. Danny didn't want to take Halloween, which he was offered. Basically, they, it spirals into this battle between the two of them where Broderick is trying to spoil Danny DeVito's whole situation. But Broderick's really relegated to this crotchety, overbearing suburban dad that just sucks. It sucks. It's not a fun character. It's poorly written. He's a huge Debbie Downer. It's one of the least favorite roles I saw of him. And to reference my earlier comment, there is a speed skating race between the two of them and a, a, I think, German couple or something played by Fred Armisen, and I don't remember her name. And in that race, DeVito rocks a Brennan Shanahan Red Wings jersey. So this is the second movie with Broderick where someone is rocking a Red Wings jersey prominently. There you go. But I think this, this quote from Walter Adiego of the San Francisco Chronicle sums up the movie best. He said, it belongs in the holidays Hall of Shame. And I couldn't agree more because it's awful. Don't watch it. Don't waste your time. Kyle, there's no way I'll ever watch that movie. You sold me. I did. I sold you guys on never spending your time. 
All right, so let's round this thing out. 30 Rock, who did a couple episodes, one in 08 and one in 2012, voiced the character Despero in The Tale of Despero in 08 alongside our boy The Tooch. A couple episodes of Modern Family, a couple episodes of Louie between 2010 and 2015. 2011, he's in Tower Heist as Mr. Fitzhugh, a movie where he plays a former Wall Street guy and gets evicted and then becomes part of a heist with a, a fun cast of characters. I like Tower Heist. I had never seen it before. I thought it was a fun blockbuster. I know it's a popcorn film, yeah. but Eddie Murphy was fun in it. Michael Pena's in it. Just a fun little film with them. Yeah, it, it, I'm fascinated with what this was initially pitched as. Did you guys hear who this was initially pitched with? No. Mm-mm. No. This was from an interview with Chris Rock. Rock said he was in producer Brian Grazer's office when Murphy pitched the movie, and it was, quote, kind of a black Ocean's Eleven starring Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, and Chris Tucker as a gang that robs... A villain named Donald Trump. <laughs> Damn it! Interesting. He was supposed to be the villain that Alan Alda played. Yeah. And it says that Trump would be the bad guy like Alan Rickman in Die Hard, Rock told the reporter. I can't believe that that was a thing. <laughs> wow. I'm kind of glad they didn't do that. Here's what Chris Rock's next line was. The movie morphed during development into what we know today as Tower Heist. The more middle-of-the-road movie with a great cast of, as Rock puts it, a bunch of white people. (laughs) (laughs) Ben Stiller is great in this movie. I I think he plays that role really well. Yeah, he is. Go check out Tower Heist if you want some light, fun, and with a good cast characters. And then he he did the Super Bowl ad for Honda in 2012, where it's it's all Ferris Bueller-related stuff. Where he steals a Honda. Do all the kids think he's a righteous dude? (laughs) All I know from that that I read was that the guy whose family got killed in the car crash commented and said, maybe not, given his driving record, maybe not the best pick for a set of car commercials for the Super Bowl, which I thought was particularly appropriate, given everything that went on. Fair point. I mean, if (laughs) if after everything that happens, you can... I think getting a couple digs in the media is a completely acceptable thing. <laughs> For sure. He followed by saying, and I've forgiven him, and I've said that before. Yeah, be like, I can make a joke or two. you know. Because they were like, he's probably like, leave me the fuck alone. I don't want to keep answering Matthew Broderick questions. Yeah. It's a cool set of commercials, and it's just basically him reliving the Ferris Bueller. So it goes to show how big Ferris Bueller is. How many years later? It was 86 to 2012, so... Like almost 30 years later, there's still it's still relevant in the pop culture space. Wow. It's ridiculous. It's, it's why he's on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Mm-hmm. Nice work if you can get it. 2012 Broadway play. Got a Grammy nom for that. A couple episodes of Adventure Time, which I don't think we've had anybody up to this one that's been on Adventure Time. So that's kind of fun. That's a new entry into the Munson's universe. Bonus. He does a bunch of other Broadway stuff at this time, too, that I'm not even going to mention. But he... he Starts to work again with Nathan Lane in It's Only a Play on Broadway in 2014. So he returns to the stage with Nathan. And then 2015's Trainwreck, a movie we mentioned last week, talking about Bron Bron. That's right. He plays himself. And again, more Bueller and War Games references in those scenes. I do not remember his cameo in Trainwreck. They basically stage an intervention for Bill Hader's character, and it's him, LeBron, who's that basketball announcer? Marv Albert. Uh, Marv Albert. Marv Albert. Okay, yes. He's a, he's in that scene with them, so it's it's pretty short, but a, a lot of Bueller and Wargame references just in that scene. So c- it continues to just be the underlying thread well, for his career. Any time that LeBron can give you advice, you should probably take it, especially if it has something to do with Cleveland. <laughs> Manchester by the Sea. 
2016, he played Rodney, a movie that Rigby loves. Yeah, I love this. He he plays Gretchen Mole's second husband in this after Casey Affleck's brother, uh, played by Kyle, Kyle Chandler, passes away. Yep, not a huge role. No, I just remember him wearing a very like bright sweater in this. He's kind of like a yeah. He's, he's kind of like a dorky, dorky dad. You can tell. It fits right in with his personality, especially in real life. He's pretty dorky like that from all the interviews I've seen. 2017 with Maya Rudolph in a Christmas Story live, and then he did something that no one else we've covered has done. He joined the American Theater Hall of Fame in 2017. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty badass. It's a huge deal. That goes to show how much work he's done in that world. He's the best one that so far theater actor that we've covered. Correct. Based on the awards, yeah, 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 two Tony wins and a Hall of Fame nod, yeah, hundred percent. I would say him or Lithgow would be like the. That's who I think of for like the two that we've covered. Wow, good throwback with Lithgow. I think of Emma too. Yeah, from Chip's first appearance or second appearance too. Yeah. Emma's done a lot of really good stuff on the theater. So it it really wasn't until the last couple of years that he started doing some more recurring TV roles because he really hadn't done any of that until 2018. In the Connors, played Peter, which is kind of an offshoot of Roseanne, correct? Yes. Yes. Yes, it was. They fired her. They shit-canned her, and they still needed to fill that spot, so they they just filled it with the Connors. So that's his first recurring role, I think, in his career, and then a year later, he did Better Things, another recurring role on television. It's a Pamela Adlon project, and she's great. Okay. I'm a, I'm a big fan of her. She's really good. The Starry Messenger. He made his West End debut in 2019, so... Went overseas. That's a big deal. Went overseas. You know, he was like, fuck it. I got in the Hall of Fame here. I'm going overseas. I'm going to start doing some stuff over there. That's England's Broadway, right? Yep. I mean, so to to make that transition, that's huge. Big time. Um, And then 2019, he made his return to SNL as Mike Pompeo in in some of the uh, political SNL skits. And another Bueller reference Mm. I noticed from that. So it just just follows him everywhere. Literally in everything he does. Can't get away from it. A show that's available on Netflix called Daybreak. He plays Principal Burr. It's a, an apocalypse show. It's kind of fun. It's got fun editing. Catch that on Netflix. Rick and Morty made an appearance in 2019 as a talking cat. I was trying to figure out what, which character he played. He played a talking cat. All right. Makes sense. He's a talking cat and Rick and Morty. You didn't recognize him? <laughs> get, your, get your shit together. George Clooney. Didn't he play on South Park? He played a. Uh, he, he barked as a dog. He, the dog. Yeah, he played the dog. That's, <laughs> that's a throwback right there. That's old school. And then the most recently, movie-wise, Lazy Susan plays Doug. Smaller role, but it's alongside Allison Janney and our girl Margot Martindale. Warren's favorite. Yeah, she's excellent in that movie. The movie sucks, but she Margot's great in that. And then most recently, I think the the coolest thing to mention is that up until 2020, or he had never really worked with his wife. In acting, which you would think two successful actors like this, they would cross paths, but they hadn't worked since they'd been married. And in 2020, they were supposed to reprise Plaza Suite on Broadway, and then the pandemic hit. So I don't think they were able to do much of it. I saw some clips from it. That's the real tragedy. <laughs> that we couldn't see he and uh, SJP on the on the stage. Yep. Finally getting around to it. How many stage roles did he then turn into feature films. Yeah, I think three or four. That's really impressive. Mm-hmm. 25 theater roles over the years. It really makes me rethink how much stature he has in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. To get those projects to come back uh, on screen is pretty cool. All right, Rick. Rigby, top performances. What do you got for us? All right, I got a list from Watch Mojo, which I think we've used before. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. They call themselves your latest top 10 list authority. Ooh. Yeah, so. A bold claim. Yeah, I know. So I can't really tell what year it's from, but because he hasn't 
as been as active as he as he was in his early part of career, I'm not going to worry about that so much. So, yeah, who wants to give it a who wants to give it a start? Film and TV, and Broadway. Uh yeah, sorry, yes, film and television. Film and TV. All right, I'll start us off. Give me Glory. Glory is number four. Okay. Give me Producers. Producers is not in the top ten. Oh shit. <laughs> I'm going to say Lion King. Yeah. Lion King is two. Nice job, Chip. Ferris Bueller. Number one. Of yeah. course. Yeah, that's that's about the most obvious guess of all games in, in months of history. I disagree with it, but I'll I'll give my opinion. We got number three that we're missing. War games? War games is three. Okay, so we've knocked out the top four already. Yep. Look at us. The low fruit here. Uh, give me Tower Heist. Uh nope. Cable guy. Cable guy's number five. There we go. Oh. All right, James, you just keep going then. <laughs> You can count on me. Tale of Despera? Nope. And no to You Can Count on Me as well. Highest critic didn't even make it. Elections got to be on it. Elections number six. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah. Inspector Gadget. Right. Nope. Please no. <laughs> Thank goodness. This list lives. We'll allow it to live. And not Godzilla, sadly enough, either, Craig. All right. You read my mind. Give me give me Project X. Nope. Did we say Lady Hawk? Uh, yeah, Lady Hawk is number seven. Nice job. Hey, there you go. Craig, you said I had great, great reading. So we just need eight, nine, and ten. B movie. Nope. <laughs> Biloxi Blues. Oh yeah. Yep. Number eight. Yeah. Did they put the thief and the cobbler in there? Please no. Nope. Oh good. Infinity. No. Did we say war games? We did. We did. Yep. That's number three. Manchester by the Sea. Nope. Good. <laughs> uh, film or TV? Both films. Both films. Dude, I have no idea. I'm even. I'm looking at a list and I still don't know. Project X. Nope. I already guessed that. Give me Road to Wellville. Nope. Oh. Damn it. No, oh, the freshman. Be. Yeah, the freshman has to be on It's there, not, right? actually, surprisingly. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right, Rigby, tell us. We're running dry here. Uh, number nine is Max Dugan Returns. Oh, yeah, his first ever role. Michael McPhee. And then number 10 is Torch Song Trilogy. Damn it. I almost said that. I wish I had. I haven't seen either of those. Early stuff. There's a lot of early stuff on that list. Yeah. So what's the top three? War Games at number three, Simba at number two, and Ferris Bueller at number one. I agree with the top three. So the list must have been published in 87. (laughs) (laughs) I would say Ferris Bueller is obviously number one for in terms of in in terms of notable roles. But my favorite role of his of his career is election in in terms of film. Election is a lot of fun. Um, At least it made the top ten. Yeah. Um, It was what, six? Number six. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's got a respectable spot. What you realize by our conversation is. That he's been a working actor for a long period of time, which is, I mean, just an incredible thing to do. Yes. Yep, you got to save it for your Munson meter review. There we go. Don't don't spend it now. All right. Don't spend it now. Munson meter time. What we do here, we rate every actor on a scale of zero to 100 on a variety of factors. We rate based on longevity, project choice, pop culture impact acting range, their awards footprint, any other talents they might have, their personal life, their comedic chops, box office success or lack thereof, and anything else that matters to us as Munson's. So this time we're going to start with James. Matthew Broderick is a star of, through my research for this podcast, both the stage and the screen. Um, I wasn't aware of the stage prior to recording this, but what I'd most known him for is being a kind of having that boyish charm or like an adult meekness in every role that he played, because I only think of the huge movies he was in when I was younger. So he's a huge star in the late 80s, early 90s, and he'll forever be immortalized as Ferris Bueller. It is a great movie. It is a classic, and he was perfect in that role. 
The Lion King is not only like one of the best Disney movies of all time, it's one of the best cartoons of all time. And while I know Cable Guy is polarizing, I loved it, even though it was mostly because of Jim Carrey and not because of him. It's still a classic to me. Uh, however, since then, I haven't enjoyed like a single role he's been in, and that's that's 15 years, which is quite a cold streak. Yeah. And while he's potentially the best theater actor we've covered with the two Tony wins, he doesn't really have any award footprint in movies whatsoever. However, I say that with the caveat that if my wife was the star of the most popular HBO show in the late 90s, early 2000s, which is still going, they have two movies, and I think another adaptation of the show is out already, I'd probably mail it in too. <laughs> 100% understand that. That is, uh, as a wife guy, I respect other unashamed, proud wife guys like Broderick. Jokes aside, he's a Hollywood legend. Uh, he's just not for me. So I tip my cap, pay my respect to the fellow wife guy, and I give him a rating of 69. All right, uh, Rigby, you're up. Yeah, James, you, you described his career really well. I think you summed up most of what I wanted to say. As I mentioned, Ferris Bueller, obviously, you know, he, he probably didn't have to work again after that, but yet he put together a pretty nice, respectable career. Ferris Bueller is still the classic, you know, that's the most notable role that he's got on his resume. Not my favorite movie, not the biggest fan of it, but I can see why people love it and I can see why it's it's a lasting lasting role and lasting image in people's heads of what they think of when they think of Matthew Broderick. Great performance in War Games, Election, obviously Lion King. Those are his top hits, but he does have a lot of stinkers. And I think where he saves himself for me, just because I, I do take into the consideration, I know we're not a, a Broadway podcast, but... Um, he has put together a very respectable, you know, obviously more than respectable, I should say, a very great Broadway career. And I think that's cool because it kind of just shows, even though he has made some some bombs at the box office in the film in the film scene, I think it shows that he probably doesn't really care because Broadway is kind of his true love. And that's that's what he's committed in most of his career to. Yeah. All that being said, I'm going to give him a 74. All right, Chip, our guest Munson, you're up. Well, I, I'm going to be the toughest of all, all you guys. Uh, I think the two Tonys speak for itself. Certainly make him on the upper echelon of, you know, of these type of actors. Most of us, most actors don't have Tonys. Yeah. But you would never, I mean, I, I just don't see how you get an Oscar performance out of him. I mean, he's not Charlton Heston. He's not the type of leading man like uh, a Harrison Ford or um, or George Clooney or something like that. He's got a definite Denzel. Yeah, he's got. He sort of has his niche there. I, you know, I'm going to say 55, and that sounds really harsh, but I, he is a working actor. He he fills his role really well, but his his niche is is. It's just there. I mean, it's it's just what it is. It's 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 not action hero. It's it's not. Um, yeah, he, he's he's a guy that you, you know. If you're going to do a, a super dramatic role, you, you're not going to throw him in there. He's on lighter roles. They takes um, that are enjoyable, and they're there to kind of enjoy the movie experience in some level. Yeah. On my end, to what you guys have said, he deserves credit for his award-winning work and long career on the stage. It's nothing like we've seen before up to this point, and it's it's worth noting. I I gotta. I know I mentioned multiple times, but the pop culture phenomenon that is Ferris Bueller mm -hmm. and the fact that 
it is referenced throughout the rest of his career. Everywhere he goes, everybody sees him on the streets, talks about it. It just goes to show how well he played that. But what's hilarious is that if you, he was quoted several years ago when he said, Ferris Bueller was one of the worst performances of my career and you never doubted it, which I think is hilariously <laughs> self-deprecating on his part. You could tell he's like 80% like, it's fine because it's made me my bags, but it's I've done better work <laughs> at the end of the day. So I appreciate that about him. I also appreciate he's a baseball and superhero nerd, loves like Marvel DC stuff and loves baseball. And those are things that, you know, that's that's me too. I'm a big fan of that. But he literally killed people. And <laughs> you got it. If we're going to do a Munson meter where you judge people's personal life, even if you didn't intend to do it, if you kill people, I'm going to take I'm going to take points off your score. <laughs> Just I feel principled on that. So I'm going to give him a 72. I feel like that's pretty fair. I didn't bring up him killing people and I rated him lower. So Kyle, do you like like murder a little more than me or <laughs> fucking love murder in fictional settings? I don't know if you knew. I like movies. Only across the pond, right, Kyle? <laughs> I don't want method actors taking it to their real life. That's what I'm saying. Craig, round us out, baby. You've said pretty much everything. I would add to the Ferris Bueller discussion that Ferris Bueller might actually be the most iconic character of any performer we've had. That's pretty cool. After 53 episodes to have that podcast is Munson's at the movie. Unfortunately, not Munson's at the theater. That being said, I'm going to give my boy a 70. All right. So that brings Matthew Broderick to an even 68 which puts him in 35th place, right between Bonnie Hunt and Dennis Haysbert. <laughs> One spot away from his box office rank. Right between Bonnie Hunt and the weighted average of Dennis Haysbert. <laughs> <laughs> hey. All right, James, what does he have coming? So he has a miniseries called Painkillers, Ooh, a scripted drama about the opioids crisis with Taylor Keach and Taylor Kitsch. Kitch, did I say that right? That actually sounds pretty dramatic. I, I might enjoy seeing him in that role, and I wish it came out before the podcast. Oh my god, the complete story of the Gettysburg Address, which sounds like something I would absolutely fall asleep during. But there's a great cast on that, and he's in that as well, and he's one of the guys who reads. That sounds like a hard pass to me. And then She Came to Me, which is with Marissa Tomei and Anne Hathaway, but doesn't have a lot of other information available at the moment. His upcoming projects sound like we could sum them up as he's going to be substitute teaching as a social studies teacher. <laughs> Bueller. Bueller. Yeah. I mean, Bueller. Bueller. full circle. Anyone? Circle of life. Anyone? Can't do the Gettysburg address. <laughs> Can't do it. <laughs> All right. Next episode is going to land on January 27th, and we're bringing back Aubrey McKay to the pod. Oh, yeah. And Aubrey's great. That'd be fantastic. He was last here as kind of assi extra assistance for our um, Aubrey Plaza episode with Corey Wallace. And these are the five actors that we, the wheel are choosing between. Aubrey picked the one that was selected, so Aubrey did not choose. But the five were Cameron Diaz, Viggo Mortensen, Roger Bart, the aforementioned, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and Emile Hirsch. What do we love? What do we hate? And what do we think Aubrey would choose? If it's Vigo, I have to withdraw myself from the Munson meter because he and I are both alums of the same university, <laughs> and I would score him way too high. No, he's a St. Cloud State alum? St. Lawrence University, upstate New York. I would score him high, and he's not even. I'm not even an alumni of the same college of him, so don't worry about that, Greg. Yeah, we all have. That's the whole reason we have the scale is so that you could give someone an outlier score. That's completely acceptable. 
<laughs> critics hated hated his directorial debut that came out like a year and a half ago. So I'd be interested to finally watch it and see if it's as bad as they say. Emil Hirsch would be would be interesting because I feel like he's got a lot of interesting films, but also like he kind of just like disappeared for a little bit. He had a big issue at Sundance. Like he got into a fight with a bunch of people in like 2014 or 2015 or something like that. And then he, he created a lot of enemies in the industry because of it. After like into the wild, he was supposed to be like Hollywood's like next kind of big thing. I feel like, and Mm -hmm. just kind of, I don't know. Just kind of has like smaller roles since then. But he's making a comeback. He's trying to, at least Mm -hmm. we could watch the girl next door and talk about that classic alpha dog. Alpha dog is awesome. Absolutely love that movie. Yeah, it's great. Um, he's also great in Beverly Leflin, An Evening with Beverly Leflin, one we talked about with Craig yes. Robinson and Aubrey Plaza. Oh, that's such an uncomfortable he's movie. He's hilarious in that movie. Oh. It is. He's hilarious in it. He's the henchman in that one. Cameron Diaz would be would be awesome to go over. Definitely. Any any reason to watch There's Something About Mary is fine with me. Your show is Wiggy. The Mask. Wiggy. Wiggy. Show up as Wiggy. Wiggy. I was worried about you. <laughs> Get into her uh, interesting early days of acting. She's funny, man. That I sent over to. It'd be interesting to like actually critique her acting because I don't think that's the reason. Like I watched all her movies. That's no. definitely not why she was in the mask. That's for sure. <laughs> no, Roger Bart, the our boy from the producers, is in Hostel and a bunch of other shitty movies. I'm sure. Roger Bart Mall Cop. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's Paul Blart. Oh, Paul Blart, my bad. Much skinnier version. <laughs> much, much. Dude, skinnier I think version. we'd finally get a reason to talk about uh, Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay if we do Roger Bart. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> yes, he is in that. That's right. He's like the the best human in the yeah, movie. He's like the aide to the to the Department of Homeland Security guy who's just Rob Corddry's character who's just like a nut job. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, young actress, but she's done some cool stuff. I'm trying to think of who that is. I'd be interested. Scott Pilgrim. She was Ramona. Oh. Yep. She was in the most recent Birds of Prey movie. Yes. With, uh, oh, Harley okay. Quinn. Yes. I know who you're talking about. She's John McClane's daughter in Live Free or Die Hard. Mm-hmm. I love 10 Cloverfield Lane. That was yep. great. Oh, yeah. We have, we've never really talked about that in that pod. Love that movie. Especially since I had to cover the other Cloverfield. We would finally be able to talk about Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. <laughs> Dude, Yerky would be so happy about that. And she's in the remake of The Thing. Oh, yeah, but well, she also had, she also had an action movie come out this year called Kate that that was actually decent. I didn't mind. Yeah, it was kind of a John Wick style. I'm Team Mary Elizabeth, whatever now. <laughs> Mary Elizabeth. And I'm looking what? at her top. <laughs> <laughs> Swiss Army Man as well, based according to Wikipedia, which was a fun A twenty. Oh, I hated film. that movie, Kyle. Oh, I like Swiss Army Man. It's so bizarre, man. But that's why I like it. So bizarre. It's like we can have Bernies, but on an island. So <laughs> With um, a farting, a farting corpse. <laughs> that's it. yeah. It's a little out there, uh, but that's A twenty four for you. That's what they do. Did you guys know that va- that Abraham Lincoln hunted vampires? Everybody knew that. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> My favorite MAGA conspiracy theories, tell me. So here's the ultimate question. Who do you think Aubrey picked? Cameron Diaz. Knowing he was here for Aubrey Plaza and he was here for Chris Rock. Cameron Diaz. I'm going to go Cameron Diaz as well. Emil Hirsch. And Chip, who would you pick? i pick Cameron Diaz. I agree. No Vigo love. Love Vigo. Seems like the, uh, the, the podcast favorite. I'm on the Emil Hirsch Winstead train myself those are the two i would want to do of the bunch but we'll see because we don't decide aubrey doesn't decide the wheel decides and we'll see what happens all right chip it was a longer one but when you're studying somebody who has got such a a a 
an immense film, TV, and theater background. I mean, this is what's going to happen if you want to give it do it justice. So, um, we appreciate you being here, man. Any plugs for the show or any wise words for our audience? Is your time to shine? Camera, 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 hot one style. Well, join Steve and I with too much scrolling. We we have enjoyed it. We've been doing it for eight years. Eight years. It's a good show, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of fun doing it. And you know, we know we learn more about Chicago and. Seems like we're expanding our our uh, area with me moving. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Now they're down in Raleigh. One well, and for our audience, too much scrolling is like almost like a father figure to Munson's at the movies. Yeah, too much scrolling spawned by me being involved with you guys doing that. Introduced me to the podcasting world and introduced Dane and Dames from the CF3 side. Yep. So it's kind of like a, it spawned all these other really cool podcasts. My favorite thing is our Oscar show where Steve sees none of the movies. I see a, a few of them and Kyle sees all of them. <laughs> <laughs> the, the usual routine. It's good fun. Yeah. Steve sees the superhero movies. That's how it goes. What was the best movie? Black Panther. <laughs> we appreciate you being here man you always bring the quips bring the puns loved having you man and you're always so eloquent thank you so much thanks for letting me be part of this this is always a blast great job chip i can't wait to hear what you have to say about don't look up (laughs) hated that movie as we wrap up um, you can find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can find us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Matthew Broderick? You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we?